0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards.
1: Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Last month, Sudan's transition to democracy was stopped short by a military coup. It was a crushing blow to the popular movement that successfully overthrew a 30-year dictatorship. For this episode, I'll be handing it over to my colleague, CNN senior international correspondent Nema El-Bagher. This fight is personal for her. Sudan is her home country, and her story is one of family and a generational battle for freedom. I was almost 11 years old when the military commander, Omar al-Bashir, took over Sudan in 1989. And overnight, our lives changed. Suddenly, there were morality police on the streets, having the right to question you about who was standing next to you, who you were with. But what I remember most in those first few hours and days is just how empty the streets were how everybody was watching and waiting to see what was coming next. Omar al-Bashir dissolved the government,
1: all political parties and trade unions. He's accused of involvement in the murder, rape, torture and displacement of civilians in the Darfur region of Sudan. Rebel groups
2: in the south have fought to split Sudan. The civil war has devastated the country. Bashir ruled Sudan with an iron fist. His government was so violent and so oppressive that it seemed hard to imagine anyone unseating him. Until 2019.
3: Long-time president of Sudan, who served for 40 years, was today arrested by the military after he resigned following four months of bloody demonstrations across
1: the capital, Khartoum.
3: They were chanting, which translates, you either give us the government or we turn everything to darkness. And I have never seen a show of strength that was more mighty.
2: The people of Sudan have been fighting for freedom for generations. It's a fight that so many Sudanese families have been a part of, including
4: my own. Freedom and progressiveness, that's what we all aspired for. That's what the motto in my generation and generations before me.
2: They're saying we're the generation that brought down al-Bashir and we're not going to be fooled. This is a story of what it takes to topple a dictator, and why rebuilding after is always harder. I'm Ni'ma al CNN's Senior International Correspondent. This is Tug of War, Episode 4, Sudan. Sudan is my country. It's a country I love dearly. Growing up in the capital of al khartoum there was always music everywhere. We had our own stars, like Mohammed Wardi, whose uniquely Sudanese sound flooded the streets. Music was how we celebrated. Even to demonstrate, to topple dictators, we turn up with just a really awesome beat. When Umar al-Bashir came to power, he tried to take all of that away from us. He banned music and silenced his critics. But people would continue to resist. And after three decades, they finally brought him down. The beginning of The End started in December 2018.
3: Everything has become very expensive and we don't know what is happening. It feels like there's a ticking time bomb and we don't know when it will
2: explode. Crippled by years of government corruption and budget cuts, the economy was in shambles. Government officials lived in the lap of luxury while most of Sudan was going hungry.
3: Literally people left their cars in queues in front of petrol stations for days and came back the next day because there was no fuel bread was the same.
2: Muzan al is an engineer and activist in Sudan. She remembers bread prices tripling overnight.
3: Students came to school and found that now the price for their falafel sandwich, they cannot afford it anymore. And that is basically the cheapest thing that most of the poorer Sudanese depended on to feed their kids and send them to school.
2: The students started arguing with the sandwich seller. He said to them, go talk to your government. So they did. They took it to the streets. They marched to the headquarters of Bashir's National Congress Party. Those of us who grew up in Sudan, we know it well. It's a building that people can't even walk next to without security forces kicking them away. The protesters didn't just walk alongside the building.
3: They set fire to it. To see that building, to see it burning, that made everybody feel like maybe we can bring this government down.
2: Videos of the blaze spread from one WhatsApp group to the next. And by March of 2019, just four months later, there was no stopping this movement. The demonstrations that started about fuel and bread prices became a call for the end of an entire regime. I'd covered uprisings in Sudan before, but this one, from the very beginning, it felt different, both in the scale and the unity of the Sudanese people. They've started coming together in the street. It feels like the demonstration is just about to begin, so we're going to head
4: outside.
2: I'm in the Shambad district of Khartoum at a neighbourhood demonstration. Outside, on the streets, a group of people have gathered in a circle. They're chanting freedom, peace and justice. salamu adala. The revolution is the choice of the people. A thawra qarara al They're calling for an end to Umar al-Bashir's military regime. Under Bashir's regime... Protesting is considered sedition against the state. It carries a death sentence. As the protests ramped up, Bashir quoted the Quran, using the word of God to justify brutal crackdowns on demonstrators. As
0: God himself said, you have, in the exacting of penance, life. What is exacting penance? It is killing, it is execution. But God described it as life because it is a deterrent to others so we can maintain security.
2: I looked around at the women and children who've gathered here on this street. Every one of them is risking their life by doing this. To an extent, so am I. I'm reporting undercover. I've hidden a camera in my handbag and I'm wearing a headscarf to blend in with the crowd. Smell the tear gas that they've been releasing on other demonstrations a little bit further away. So people here are starting to get ten We escape to a nearby house where a local family is sheltering protesters. The security agents have arrived. They're going from house to house. So we've been brought here. This is this we're told is a is a safe house. We have to hide out here. Um, they're trying to figure out how we can get out. The woman, whose house this is, shuts the door. She curses them under her breath, quoting from the Qur'an. Allah is enough for us. Those are the first words of a prayer often intoned in times of injustice. It's become part of the daily routine of so many Sudanese in houses like these, where they're sheltering protesters. She draws the curtains and we peep out through the window. I just saw their cars driving past. They're going from door to door, trying to figure out who was out in the demonstrations. We're trapped. Hours passed. We watch as security forces storm into the house next door, dragging out the neighbor's son. Hitting him as the woman screams for help, but help never comes. Finally, we see an opening to escape. We leave our equipment behind in case we get captured and we make a dash for our car. We're among the lucky ones. We escaped to safety, but many protesters couldn't. By this point in the uprising, more than 3,000 people have been arrested and dozens killed. We interviewed many activists and heard awful stories, stories about secret detention sites, stories about sexual assault and torture. They detained us in an abandoned building. Because we were so severely beaten, we went numb. I couldn't feel my legs and arms.
3: The place was so cold. It felt like there were knives piercing our bodies. I only spent two days there, but they were the worst two days of my life. Bashir's
2: government has tried over the years to keep these atrocities under wraps by clamping down on the media. They've been known to block the internet and to ban cell phones. My sister Yusra, who's also a journalist, was filming at a protest when she was harassed by security forces. Finally, I opened the door. They ripped my shirt trying to get me to give up my camera phone. They're on high alert today and they're trying to make sure that the world isn't watching. My mother was especially hard hit by the news. She thought we'd lost her.
4: I was so worried I could have died. This is a bloodthirsty regime. And that moment, we, we just became aware that something big is happening.
2: My mother would know. She's seen Sudanese regimes rise and fall, but never anything as bad as Bashir. And yet her generation and the battles she fought, they set the foundation for the resilience that we're seeing in these youth today. After the break, what my mum, her battle scars and our family newspaper reveal about Sudan's decades-long battle for democracy.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number
1: stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi.
4: Hello. How are you? Did you hear me? Hi, mama. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Hi. Hi, Habibi.
2: Don't let this chit chatty voice fool you. My mother, Ibtisam Osman Ahmed, is in her 70s now, but she is as terrifyingly tough as ever. And at 43 years old, I am not embarrassed to admit that I call her every time it feels like I can't see a path forward.
4: I am a publisher, a managing director of the publishing house before it was stopped by the regime.
2: She was actually the first female publisher in Sudan. Together with my father, they ran an influential opposition newspaper for many years. Resistance is so entrenched in our family that it's
4: practically casual dinner table conversation. (laughs) Your father was in jail uh, in the political custody. And a burglar came and uh, stole my battery from my car. And when you saw the police, you were just below two years. And you kept hitting the police and you telling him, You took my father, you took my father. And we told you this is the police. <laughs> this is not <laughs> this is the wrong you're... these are the wrong men in uniform. <laughs> this is the wrong one. Yeah. And Baba
2: told the story at, at our wedding that it was one of the proudest moments of his life. Yeah. <laughs> the modern day fight for Sudan started with the battle for independence. The
0: world has gained a new nation. The Sudan for 58 years under the joint rule of Britain and Egypt.
2: When the British left in 1956, Sudan inherited the problems left behind by colonial rule. The British had ruled the North and South separately, exacerbating already fraught ethnic divisions in Sudan and setting the stage for bloody civil wars that would continue for decades. Over the years, Sudan has swung back and forth between military and civilian rule.
4: 1964, democracy was restored by the uprising.
2: My mother was barely a teenager when she joined her first
4: revolution. I was about 14 years old. Wow. So we all joined and we all went to the demonstrations and they used to chase us and, you know. Wait,
3: wait, 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 wait.
4: You were
2: 14 years old. You were a baby.
4: Yeah. Do you remember how you felt? Actually, we all covering our faces because we, we don't want to be hit in the face. <laughs> our only <laughs> worry is not girls. to be hit in the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to be disfigured. But if you are going to die, we'll die. Looking back, it's
2: hard to wrap my head around the idea of my 14-year-old mother marching against a dictator, prepared to give her life for her country. <laughs> Musicians like Muhammad Al-Amin celebrated and immortalised the revolution in anthems like these. But times got hard again in the 1980s when another military leader introduced harsh Sharia law.
4: And Sudan changed. From that moment on, Sudan changed. We always say that it's the beginning of the end of this beautiful Sudan, Fed up, the Sudanese people came together again
2: and overthrew that regime in 1985. That's when my parents started their newspaper. They called it Al-Khartoum, named after the capital
4: city, after their home. First, we wanted the the paper to be for everyone. What we tried to build is the voice for the people. We had correspondents in every region in Sudan. In the south, in the west, in the east, in the middle of Sudan, the newspaper rocked the establishment.
2: After years of oppression, people were desperate for intellectual connection to the outside world. So the newspaper did really well. It featured voices of Sudanese across the political spectrum and the diaspora. In a country that for so long had been ruled by division, the paper showed a different vision of what Sudan could be. United able to reason through our differences. But that all ended, and it ended abruptly.
4: In 1989, they stopped everything and confiscated and froze our assets.
2: The night it happened, my father was flying to Egypt to import ink for the newspaper. My mother remembers dropping him off at the airport.
4: 6 a.m. we heard the declaration of the new military regime, the coup. We call it Marchat Askaria military, you know. The, oh, the... you
2: heard the military marches. You heard the military music on Sudan TV
4: and you yeah. immediately well, recognized it. TV and radio. It. And we, we knew that there, there is a coup. The minute they took power, they stopped newspapers. That was the
2: day Bashir took power. For Baba's safety, he didn't return from Egypt. But the regime continued to harass our family. They kept us under close watch. We weren't even allowed to leave Sudan to join my father.
4: They were really trying to intimidate people, to show power.
2: One of my favorite memories is this image of my mother wearing a perfectly ironed tub, our national dress, her prayer beads wrapped around her wrist, looking like she was just in this full armour, prepared to be interrogated by national intelligence.
4: It was very humiliating because they were really aggressive. They would say you are loose women or this stuff or that stuff. But still, I didn't care. I didn't care at all.
2: I guess I wonder how my mother found the strength to carry herself day in, day out. To raise her children alone while her husband was in exile. Eventually, we did all move to the UK, while my father remained in Cairo, running the newspaper from abroad. During the turn of the century, Bashir tried to reform his image on the global stage. He distanced himself from some of the hardline Islamists in his government and began courting people like my parents to come home. By then, it had been 10 years since we went into self-exile and my parents always wanted to be among their family. And so they took the chance. They came back and Al Khartoum
4: started printing in Sudan once again. I was hoping to help the people. We didn't want to make money of it. We wanted to help the people and the profession itself. We wanted to teach journalism, to make people with talent uh, have a chance and you were the first one of the people who benefited from this name, remember?
2: Yeah, I, I trained in, in your newsroom. In the yeah, al Khartoum you trained
4: newsroom. in Khartoum. They
2: still call it Madrasta al-Khartoum, the school of Al Khartoum.
4: Madrasta, the school of Khartoum.
2: In 2002, I had just graduated from university. And I thought, if I want to be a journalist, Sudan is actually where I should be, where I need to be. So I started reporting for my parents' newspaper, and from there, I started publishing for other international outlets. Darfur is a part of Sudan that its government doesn't want people to visit. We'd chartered a plane to get there. At the time, the crisis in Darfur was just beginning to ferment. Ethnic minorities were being slaughtered by groups loyal to Bashir's regime. And being Sudanese, I was able to head out to the front lines and disappear for weeks at a time to embed with the rebels. We're just coming up to the first displaced people's camps. I think these are the images that people really associate with Darfur. The international community would later call the Darfur crisis a genocide. And to date, millions have been displaced and more than 300,000 people killed from starvation, disease and the attacks. In 2009, the International Criminal Court issued a warrant for Bashir's arrest.
4: Five counts of crimes against humanity: murder, extermination, forcible transfer, torture and rape. But the
2: charges didn't faze Bashir. In response, he danced, on stage, at a party, in front of thousands of supporters. It was a surreal and menacing image. He taunted the West. He spat on the lives and the graves of the victims. With the world's eyes on Darfur, Bashir intensified efforts to censor our family newspaper the government appointed an officer to station in the newsroom. And every day was a fight to publish our stories. My favourite thing was always, Baba would come and he would have these huge arguments with them and you would not get involved. But when they went too far, that was when they would be threatened and they would be told, do you want to find a resolution or shall I call my wife? And they would say... (laughs)
4: We can we can figure it out. We can figure it out. Sometimes they will come and say, we don't want this uh, columnist to write. We'll take his column away. And, you know, after the argument, we'll say, OK, we'll not print the whole page. Everybody will know that the security forces took the column or took the piece of news. And we will say, OK, we'll just leave it. They wanted to make you
2: complicit by forcing yeah. you to cover up for, the, for their continued censorship and, and you refused. Yeah. You defied them. Yeah, we defied them. Publishing a blank page, looking back, it was just such a poetic way to defy the censorship. If we couldn't speak the truth, at least we could make sure people knew that we were being muzzled. Life at the newspaper got increasingly difficult. Bashir's regime started piling on financial pressure and within a year or so, the newspaper was bankrupt. My parents were heartbroken. The regime had not only robbed them of their livelihood, but also of a platform for Sudanese to speak out against oppression.
4: Freedom and progressiveness, that's what we all aspired for. But they killed our spirit. I think they killed our spirit. It
2: was only when the young people started protesting in 2018 that my mother said she finally felt a new glimmer of hope.
4: I was really happy when I saw the people who were raised during the Bashir regime to rise because they didn't see what we experienced. They gave us our blood to make this revolution work, the young people of Sudan. After the
2: break, Bashir finally meets his reckoning. But what would come next? By April 2019, the revolution that started over bread prices and fuel reached a crescendo. Tens of thousands of protesters from all across the country marched right to the heart of Khartoum. They set up camp in front of the military headquarters and they carved out a space that embodied their vision of Sudan. It was everything Bashir's government wasn't. Peaceful, inclusive, free. Muzan al-Nil, the activist we heard from earlier in the episode, was there. And she remembers what it felt like.
3: There was always music around. There was a school for the homeless kids. There was a whole building that was turned into basically an art gallery where people painted. If you needed food, it's there. If you needed security, it's there. If you had an opinion, you can say it. And I, I haven't been in a better place. This was a new generation.
2: One which rejected the divisive rhetoric of Bashir's regime. They wanted a Sudan that embraced its diversity rather than fought wars over it. I'll always remember this chant they had You old, arrogant racist, we are all Darfur. You can't divide us. I'd never seen this kind of unity across ethnic and geographic lines before, and at the heart of it all
3: were women. It was the girls who were not sent to school if the family cannot afford to send everybody to school. It was the women who are expected to take care of the sick in the family because health services are not provided by the government anymore. You cannot threaten women by being imprisoned by the government if they have been imprisoned for most of their adult lives.
2: Five days into the sit-in on April 11th, 2019, protesters got the news they had been waiting for.
3: After three decades in iron-gripped control, 75-year-old Omar Hassan al-Bashir was forced out of power.
2: I still remember the moment I heard the news. I was in New York. I immediately booked my plane tickets home. Honestly, it was the longest plane ride of my entire life, but probably the most fun... Come on. People were just singing and dancing. I don't know how the air steward got anyone to buckle in and just sit down so the plane could take off and land. It was just this moment of, of pure distilled pride. Welcome to downtown Khartoum. It may look like things are clearing up here and people are going home, but actually what's happening is that they're swapping shifts because The protesters here still will not leave this space unoccupied. Protesters reveled in the victory. But more importantly, they also knew that they couldn't let up on this fight. We're trying to get up high to show you exactly how many people are here. It's completely extraordinary. When Bashir was arrested, it was his own military that took charge. It was leaders from within his own ranks that were still running the country. And that isn't what the protesters had fought so hard for. So they refused to allow the soldiers to drag their mattresses away from the sit-in site. They're saying we're the generation that brought down al-Bashir and we're not going to be fooled. The military formed a transitional military council with the promise of handing over power to civilian rule. They pledged to bring Sudan into an era of democracy and freedom, where peaceful demonstrations were allowed. But the protesters, they called their bluff. It was early morning, June 3rd, 2019. The protesters had remained at the sit-in site for two months after Bashir's ousting. Security forces descended with gunfire, leaving more than 100 dead and many more injured and still unaccounted. There were reports of dozens of rapes and bodies found floating in the Nile. It was a warning from the new regime. Push us too far and we'll show you who's really in charge. A month later, the civilian coalition signed an agreement to co-govern the country with the military. They set an almost three and a half year deadline to hold democratic elections. For some, this felt like a step forward. But for Muzen, it felt like a betrayal.
3: I was angry. I went out and I saw people celebrating and I told myself that... You know, you need to understand that people really are looking for a break and they really need a win. But it still frustrated me to see people celebrating a power-sharing agreement with war criminals.
2: In some ways, things got better. It was no longer illegal to be Christian or for women to be out on the streets alone. But Sudan was still plagued by corruption and progress was slow.
3: We are trying to rebuild the civil society that is actually representative of the society Uh, After 30 years of almost a total lack of any public political debate or, or action or engagement from the people.
2: The military still controlled most of the industry in Sudan and they held its economy hostage. Inflation, poverty, conflict all proved intractable.
1: We don't
3: want this government. We want it to resign and go away. This government is not capable of answering to the demands of the people, neither regarding health nor cost of living, nothing.
4: November 2021
2: was the deadline for the military leaders to fully hand over power to the civilian government. But as the date got closer, the military changed their tune they didn't want to give up economic control. They also feared the wrath of a civilian government that was understandably hellbent on seeking justice for Darfur and for the June massacre. In September, a failed coup led by Bashir loyalists was squashed. And then came October 25th.
3: Sudan's military has dissolved civilian rule, arrested political leaders and declared a state of emergency. Remember this?
2: Was this the end of the revolution? Has all the work been for nothing? Held under house arrest by the army, Sudan's civilian prime minister called for people to occupy the streets, to defend their revolution. Hundreds heeded the call, gathering, marching to the army headquarters, chanting... The people are stronger. Retreat is impossible.
0: The street has a unified opinion. Our country was taken hostage for 52 years. It is impossible to allow the army to be back in power after the agreement was reached and the blood of the martyrs was shed. We made a promise to the martyrs and we are keeping it.
2: It's an incredibly heartbreaking moment for so many in Sudan right now after all the lives sacrificed to take down Bashir. Now it feels like we're moving back into the darkness. And if we've learned anything over the past six decades in Sudan, it's that the military has only sowed division and caused destruction to the country. How can we believe that it will be any different now? I want to read to you a poem that for so many generations of Sudanese has embodied the spirit of resistance. Born are the beautiful children, hour by hour with brightest eyes and loving hearts you have bestowed upon fatherland. They will come, for bullets aren't the seeds of life.
4: Mahjub Sharif, a great poet and a great political thinker, he was, may his soul rest in peace. Mahjoub Sharif
2: meant a lot to our family. To this day, my father still cries when he listens to one of his poems. My parents knew Ustaz Mahjoub personally. He actually wrote
4: for the newspaper. He had a page in the newspaper which is called Nafaj. Nafaj is a door that is hidden, you know? When you say in Arabic Nafaj, a door that's like the secret garden theme. That there is a door that will yeah. take you to a world of poetry, of uh, uh, wisdom, I think, of freedom. Yeah, freedom:
2: Ustaz Mahjub Sharif called my parents' generation "the Giving generation." Theirs was the generation that he believed worked to rebuild Sudan after the 1964 revolution. They dedicated their lives to their country, to education, to the civil service. Do you think there could be a new giving generation?
4: Yes, this generation, which made the revolution, your generation. And I always think of all the Sudanese youth, all the people who grew under this regime, and they are still young and they're going to help their people. I want unity for Sudan. I want peace for Sudan. I want future for this generation, for your children, my grandchildren. I want future for them. I want them to live in a a place where they call home.
2: Tug of War is a CNN Audio Original Series production. Megan Marcus is our executive producer, and Haley Thomas is our senior producer. Our producer is Emily Liu. Our associate producers are Alex Stan, Nathan Miller, and Xavier Lopez. Mixing and sound design by Nathan Miller. On the ground reporting by me, Barbara Vanatides, Alex Platt, John Luca Mezzafiore, Katie Paul Glaze, Eliza McIntosh, Sheena McKenzie, Abdelgadir Bashir, Salah Nasr, and Salma Abdulaziz. With support from Sarah Sirgani, Mustafa Salim, Mirna Sharif, Rashid Abdelwahab, Munir Zaki, Faiz Jamil, Robert Mathers, Miriam Annenberg, David Lindsay, Chip Grabo, Kelly Slade, Ashley Lusk, Lindsay Abrams, Rafina Ahmed, Lisa Namrau and Courtney Coop. And with a special thank you to Clarissa Ward and her fantastic team for letting me tell this story on her podcast. New episodes of Tug of War drop weekly, so do follow wherever you get your podcasts. It's absolutely worth a listen. And please give us a rating and review. It helps others find the show. I'm Ni'ma al Thank you so much for listening.